Hello, and welcome to the Indexical Podcast. I'm your host, Madison Hying. Today's episode features an interview that I recorded with sound artist Anna Frizz last week on April 23rd. I'm excited about this episode because it's the first in a series of upcoming podcasts containing interviews made over the internet during quarantine. Anna is also fascinating. In our conversation, she shared her ideas about the relational and material nature of radio, how radio can build communities across difference and distance, as well as her thoughts on issues surrounding mediation, transmission, and transduction. Throughout the episode, you'll hear excerpts from Anna's 2018 performance at the Radius Gallery in Santa Cruz, including a long segment at the end of our conversation. Stick around to check it out. If you have thoughts or questions about this episode of the Index School podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Our handle is at an index of music. I'm also available via email at madison at Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy. Well, just to get started, um, could you just introduce yourself and say a little bit about what you do? My name is Anna Frizz, and I am a radio artist and sound artist, and I guess now trans- transforming myself a little bit into a filmmaker as well. And I've dabbled with a lot of different platforms to think across media and transmission. So from radio and also live theater and dance and film installation and public performance and um, cabaret fringe productions, those sorts of things, but also uh, online streaming since the late 90s and uh, different kinds of um, multi-channel, multi-nodal improvisational settings. So um I would say I'm a generalist rather than a specialist. That's perhaps an apt way to describe what I'm doing. Yeah, nothing's off limits, it sounds like. <laughs> That's right. Most <laughs> things are most things are allowed. <laughs> Great. Well, to get maybe to a more uh, specific place, a lot of your work does seem to um, center around radio. And I was just curious about how you first kind of started to get into radio and when that happened and what, what, what it was about radio that really fascinated you. So I got started in radio in 1993 in Vancouver uh, at CITR Radio, which was a community radio station that was uh, hosted at the University of British Columbia and is still going strong. Um, And I had actually really wanted to be on the air since I was pretty small. Um, I mean, I had that that classic experience of listening to the radio at night in my room with my little transistor radio that, you know, most people can kind of, you know, of a certain era can can uh, relate to. But um, for me, it was also this fascination with, with speaking into the microphone. And I, I did a lot of um, maybe tests as a child into a, a, a small cassette player that had a microphone that I inherited from a, a Danish grandfather. And uh, my mother listened to radio really a lot at home. She was listening to the CBC 
in Vancouver, which is, you know, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation or the sort of NPR-ish equivalent of in Canada. And uh, what was great about that was that I really felt like I understood the day or the measure of the day based on my mother's listening habits, which programs were on, which room she was in, what she was doing, uh, because she would carry this transistor radio all over the house, like all all the time. So, so once I got my hands on this little cassette recorder, and I'm not sure what age that was, maybe it was like age eight or 10 or something of this sort. Um, I just started recording myself as a, as a program host, uh, because I was quite obsessed with with these different voices and these different um, these different characters that I'd heard on the radio. So when I started in radio at CITR in 1993, I was with a group of four other women. We were all undergraduate students, and we wanted to do a feminist talk radio show that also had you know music by sort of like feminist punk bands and like nascent queer core and that sort of thing. Um, and I had always been really, really eclectic in my musical tastes, like been really interested in uh, Negative Land and The Residents and like industrial music and uh, really old blues and, you know, Hungarian folk music and Motown. And, you know, so by the time I kind of got to radio, I was really ready to just listen to everything. I didn't feel particularly judgmental about genre, I was just really interested in like, what's the perfect set? How does something flow from one aspect to another? Like, how are different, what are different kinds of like threads you can follow when you're DJing as a, a, like a radio show and a radio set? And how can you build that up around like an interesting guest who has something to say or a conversation that you have with your, your co-programmers? So, uh, so initially I was really interested in all of that, like the production side of it and the kind of construction of a certain sort of radiophonic character. And then at some point, um, it started to occur to me that there was this much more complex relationship going on with uh, like the city, so sort of the territory of, of where radio waves are. And because I was also someone who continued listening to the radio station, especially the station where I was programming, um, I had this very strong connection to knowing both the studio and knowing the feeling of listening to that same station out in the world in a variety of different settings, like in a car and on the bus, um, you know, in my, in my little basement suite, you know, on, on the sort of at the edge of the, of, of the radio um, um, reception area. And Vancouver is a kind of interesting city because it's it's sort of hilly. So you have these uh, peaks and valleys in the city where reception is more or less good. <laughs> and uh, CITR at that time was broadcasting from the top of uh, the one of the dormitories at UBC, which is sort of on this peninsula at the edge of town. And it also shares a frequency with the... Uh, uh, with the community radio station in Victoria on Vancouver Island. So there's places where you can drive and you can f hear the sound of one station sort of be overcome by the other. So there's this interesting moment where I became really aware that like, oh, frequencies are shared and frequencies are affected by geography. And um, there's all of this kind of non-human... Uh, uh, sort of in not just interaction but like the 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 con, um the conditions of transmission are not just about the radio station the radio station points out these other things like it's this way to understand something about where you live 
So all of that led me to start thinking about, huh, how could I, how could I also transmit this insight to people? Um, so not just playing songs, but, or, or kind of talking with people, but how can I, how can I begin to build in this, this feedback feeling that I have this kind of, uh, uh, not this sort of more than broadcast feeling that I have now in the radio station. And at the same time, I also had sort of taken over the role of being the volunteer coordinator. So I was doing all of the training for uh, new volunteers. Uh, and at that time, in the by that time, it was like 1997 or so. Um, I mean, we had nothing digital to work with. Everything was on tape. So we were using reel-to-reel players and cart machines for which are kind of, you know, like a, a, a small looping proto eight track, you, you might say. Um, it's just like a, 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 like a, a little endless self-queuing tape loop that you can use for recording little um, messages, like little uh, uh, station IDs or advertisements or whatever. And so uh, I got really interested in like, let's make really long tape loops and let's let's do different kinds of tape tricks. Let's run the tape across three machines. Let's uh, let's start using the cart machines to queue up interesting sort of musical loops. Like, how can the how can the production studio become a kind of instrument? How can I really create something here and not uh, and not only produce uh, a certain sort of programming, but how can I like really make original sounds out of this? How can I use this for sampling? Is that how you sort of got into more abstract sounds that were maybe less based in kind of music as, as we typically think about it? Absolutely. I mean, I had been so interested in, in music that was already doing that, but I hadn't understood how, how that worked. You know, it just, you know, I, I wasn't in music school, I wasn't in art school, so I just, I didn't really have a, a clear idea of how people were making those sounds. But all of a sudden I realized like, oh, the tape machine is the instrument. Okay, now I get it. Right. And so then I started understanding like, oh, this is what delay actually is. Oh, this is what slap delay is. Oh, this is what feedback is. This is how these these sort of mechanisms around sonic production and ideas around electronic music, like, oh, this is what these are. You know, I was a bit slow to catch up, you know, because I had kind of come more from punk than coming from electroacoustic music. So, Sure. And it seems like then maybe from a young age, like with the tape recorder at home, there is something about just getting in there and with your hands, doing it yourself and kind of figuring out with the technology, what it actually does and how it works. Is that kind of approach still part of your practice? Absolutely. Like the, the sort of the materialness of it was right. really important to me. It was just like, okay, what kind of microphone is that? What kind of speaker is it? How large or small is it? How does the speaker condition the sound that comes out of it? So it's not just what I put in, but it's also the playback mechanism conditions, how I am able to listen to something. And so um, I also started working at the Western Front in, in Vancouver, which is an artist-run center um, that's been around for ages and ages and has really strong fluxus roots and uh, a, a very irreverent mix of uh, early video art in Canada as well as uh, sort of absurdist performance and um, pirate radio and a, a strong connection to uh, Tetsuo Kogawa, who's a, a Japanese media artist who also kind of um, infamous for developing uh, a very small um, FM transmitter uh, circuit that uh, uh, many people around the world have been building through his workshops and through kind of extensions of his uh, his plans. 
So in 1998, uh, I took a workshop with um, Bobby Kozanuk, who's another artist uh, based in Vancouver, um, which was to build this two watt FM transmitter based on the Tetsuo Kogawa model. And we were a little workshop of maybe six or seven people. And uh, when it came time to set the frequency, because it was just set on a small coil, like it was sort of very, uh, uh, very craft based in terms of making that or setting the setting the transmission frequency, we all just agreed, okay, we're all going to choose the same frequency, because that'll be the pirate frequency in, in Vancouver. That way we can all find each other if people are just intermittently doing projects. So um and so that just completely opened my world in terms of being able to make the sort of very loose DIY performance practice that I had at that point, which was really based in cabaret and performance art, uh, meet this practice I had at the radio station making sound, because suddenly I could broadcast from anywhere. And, and you know, two watts is not nothing. You can actually broadcast kind of, you know, a, a decent little a decent little distance if you're making a fun project so so the very first project I did with that was um, a friend of mine uh, Sharon Feder and I um, occupied the former polar bear enclosure at the Stanley Park Zoo in Vancouver um, on Mother's Day and we said to the zoo that like we were going to do a children's show and instead we staged this like takeover uh, in full sort of you know uh, uh, kind of like black gear with like face masks and everything, which, you know, now feels sort of, I don't know, I feel like it's a throwback almost to that, everyone walking around with face masks on. But but we repelled into this pit because, you know, the, the bear enclosure had had all of this water in it at one point. So it's like a very steep drop down, this concrete moat into this pit. And then there's this like built up sort of rocky area where the bears could lounge around and display themselves. And so... We set up the transmitter in there and then set up all of these uh, solar powered radios and we're broadcasting this um, this kind of like insurgent, rebellious radio show that we had made over the course of three nights on the overnight slot on CITR radio. So we had both staged a takeover of the radio station for several days and then we were like in the pit broadcasting that, which was a sort of mixture of our homemade super industrial sounds filled with manifestos and kind of... Uh, uh, you know, um, political commentary and um, and then appropriate bands and music that could sort of support that. But um, but anyway, it was like an eight hour takeover where we sort of where the radio really made made that territory kind of taken in in some way. And people who were uh, coming to the event, like friends of ours who knew we were doing it. Um, they said they could hear the station like as, as they were driving into Stanley Park. So it was actually like at least a couple of kilometers uh, around the, the bear pit that you could hear the signal. So um, anyway, it was kind of a weird performance, but, um, but that really gave me the sense of like, oh, okay, this is something. Like the fact that we can see who can hear the signal, that's something. That's, that's, an, that's an interesting twist in this transmission relationship. Yeah, and it does seem like, I don't, I don't know, I'm formulating my question, but... Um there are these kind of underlying themes in your work that have to do with sort of like environmental and political activism. And I wonder like by what you're saying, if there's something maybe inherent in the radio that allows people that wouldn't necessarily otherwise be able to, to sort of take up space somewhere. Absolutely. I mean, I, I so strongly believe in community radio um, even more than pirate radio because pirate radio 
sometimes can be community radio, but it might not be. Sometimes it turns into sort of, you know, just the project of a very small group. And there's something so powerful about community radio because there's there's so much potential for difference to be rubbing up against each other and for really different kinds of communities to meet one another. And, um, and again, it's not that the radio station is the key. The radio station enables something, but it's actually not the focus. It's all of the sort of soci- sociality that, that happens, that grows up around the station that makes things possible. Um, and so, I mean... I've made other pieces since that sort of speculate on possible futures, including sort of, I don't know, optimistic takes on dystopia, one might say. <laughs> sure. um, and uh, and in each one, I really believe that, that radio is one of those technologies that's absolutely going to survive because you can make a radio circuit out of very little. It takes very little to make it function. You don't need to be super technical you don't need to be very precise you can use compromised materials you can salvage from whatever junk you have lying around and you know we've got enough electronic junk in this world that anybody can make a radio transmitter so um i feel like it's it's something that's very uh practical and it's it it also goes against this dream of of technological mastery and and uh these sort of linear notions of modernist uh, sort of innovation and and some some idea about like well eventually we'll we'll have we won't need our bodies it's like well radio actually affirms that you need your body radio is all about bodies right. there's nothing disembodied about it it's just that you're sharing your body across like these these territories that are larger than where you can see but uh but it couldn't be more embodied. You're just you're sharing your embodiment with devices, but also with like um, with geography, with sunspots, with stars. So it's a kind of radical embodiedness, it seems to me. So yeah, a like radical relational embodiedness. It's like you see how you are connected to all these other people and things, and uh, like you said, geographies around you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Well, that kind of gets to my next question, which I realize now is like, you've kind of talked about quite a bit, but something that I'm interested in is sort of, you do a really good job in your work of exploring the kind of like site specificity of radio, while also kind of playing with, there is both at once this like sense of placeness, but also placelessness, because it seems invisible, it seems immaterial, even though it isn't. And so I just wonder if you could kind of talk about like exploring those opposites a bit. Yeah, I mean, this this is what's so fascinating is, is that feeling of distance, um, like radio allows you to experience distance um and so it's this delightful paradox um i mean of course that's also the thing that can be manipulated it's not like it's automatically something that is uh you know for the good um i mean this is where sort of radio artist gregory whitehead always writes about like the the sort of the twin aspects of eros and thanatos in in radio like the 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 drive for for union and then also like the use of these sorts of wireless technologies for per, you know military purposes and um you know like like for the de- for the destruction of things um but for me i feel like the more i worked with radio uh the more i felt like it it wasn't really about something technical it had to do with with a set of relations and so in that case the um this aspect of distance is really interesting so even if the distance is very small 
it still exists. And there's a certain instability in that, which is really interesting. And, you know, uh, my background as a communication scholar has kind of led me to be interested in how transmission and ideas around transmission can offer something for us as we think about, uh, you know, different models of communication. So not to only focus on dialogue and not to only think about the sort of desire for union, but also to accept difference and to be interested in distance as something productive and something that, um, that also gives pleasure. Like, the reason we love a sound with reverb on it is because that implies a larger space. It implies distance. It implies sound traveling and reverberating from another, you know, another surface or, or expressing the, the volume of a larger space. There's something incredible about being in a reverberant space. So um, that's not possible if you, if you don't, if you, if you leave distance behind. So Radio, of course, doesn't doesn't contain reverberation, and so the thing that that is always paradoxical too is to be slapping reverb onto you know interesting radio signals. But but that's still one of the ways that we kind of conceptually understand that that means that in, implies spaciousness and implies distance. Right. So, um, and I also feel like there's there's this interesting um, kind of uncanniness around listening to the things that we can't see, but that are still present. So that's the other thing I'm always interested in is like, what about the stuff we can't see, but that's still here? Um, So even, you know, some of my earlier pieces that were obsessed with uh, these sort of funny stories, like the little people inside the radio and so on. It was again, it was about like, what, what can't we see? What could we imagine that we can't see? But, you know, for a little person inside the radio, you know, like a sort of kid's idea of like, where do the voices come from? Well, there's little people inside the radio. I mean, that's a place. And radio is literally a place if you're a person inside the radio. But I've also, as a programmer, I've also been that person inside the radio to some degree. And when you're sitting late at night in a radio studio by yourself at three o'clock in the morning, um, broadcasting to who knows who, like you can start to feel like that little person inside the radio. and, and then it becomes interesting to think both about that as being somewhere and at the same time, you know, for the people listening, that feels like that feels like nowhere. But right. for me, broadcasting to the people out there, they feel like they're in nowhere because I don't know where they are yet. So, so all of those unknowns, those instabilities are part of what makes transmission so interesting. And yeah. I feel like that's where we have this opportunity to be in a space of imagination rather than a space of knowledge. Right. So. And but also like an, it seems like there's so much potential to um, give people new experiences and like expose them to new things that they wouldn't otherwise like you're saying and to like accept difference because I think with the voice in particular over the radio there's something so intimate about it and especially if you're listening at home it's like bringing another person's voice into your home and if that person comes from a different background than you that's like this really interesting relational experience of difference um, and so it seems like you're kind of playing with that as well um of just like getting to um like exploit that multiple place placeness yes yes that's exactly it it's that radio allows you in a way to clone yourself like you get to multiply yeah um as a listener as well you also multiply because 
you have this learned experience of turning on the radio and listening. And so you also re recall the other times you've done that. Like there's, there's, there's a certain sort of accumulation of self as, as a listener in the same way that there's a weird uh, multiplication of myself as someone uh, broadcasting. veer a little away from radio or maybe how radio fits into kind of the broader technical context of kind of what you tend to do. So I, I definitely think of your works as being multimedia. And with a lot of them, it seems like there's really strong kind of visual elements. Um, there's really strong sound component. Um, and then there's often like a like you do a lot of installations, so it's like this embodied placeness. Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk about how these ideas that you're kind of circling around mediation and transmission and transduction kind of fit into all those different media inhabiting space. Right. I mean, I, I feel like one of the one of the great uh, gifts that I had when I moved to Toronto was to start working in theater and with contemporary dance um, uh choreographers and companies uh, because 
then it was really this meeting between needing to make an embodied show with physical people and at the same time also um, the projects I was brought into were specifically ones that had to do with things like memory or space. Um, they were particularly pieces where uh, the directors wanted to work with like micro cassette, for instance, or with uh, with different sorts of wireless systems. Like they more or less wanted me to set up a, an installation environment in which um, a devised theater or, or dance production could take place. So... Um, I, f I think those experiences really influenced how I then started thinking about larger scale installation work because I wanted to hang on to that aspect of, um, of feeling like people who come to enter into or visit an installation also have some of the uh, feeling of play or uh, uh, openness that, that also performers inevitably have in a, in a kind of devised setting also in those sorts of situations. So, um, so I'm not usually setting up something where people are like pressing a button or doing a thing in order to interact. The interaction has to do with a quality of attention. And usually I'm, I'm trying to enable a situation where people can pay attention in a particular way. So maybe it's the, the kind of subject matter. So like the, like recent work that I'm doing involves looking at um, uh, large scale mining in northern Chile in the deserts uh, uh, in the Atacama region, which is where uh, open pit copper mines um, are very densely um, located and lithium mining and rare earth mining is also taking place. So these are all kind of like the key ingredients to all of my media equipment, my cell phone, my smartphone, my laptop, my recorders, my microphones, like I'm, I'm super implicated in this. I, I don't in any way excuse myself, but, um, but also to be interested in that as a kind of like very deep embodiment that is, is ma usually made invisible behind the, 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 the mobility and the, and the smallness of, of all of these devices, like if the future is supposed to be this kind of slick wirelessness, there's a tremendous amount of dirt being moved elsewhere in the world to make that possible. And so I wanted to be able to make work that was re reflective of that, but not only to be realizing like, oh, here's the environmental impact of electronic life. I also wanted to think about, well, what does that mean in terms of how we understand where we're located and where power lies? And transmission really allows you to think about these things because transmission ecologies revolve around the idea that there are certain kinds of um, relations that are dominant and others which are uh, uh, others which are kind of like resonant, we might say. So, um, you know, in a city, if you think of what the transmission ecology is, it includes like giant radio towers. It includes, uh, you know, 5G towers. Right. It includes television towers. I mean, not analog TV anymore, but in some cities it still does. Um, but it also includes uh, electrical grids and uh, batteries in people's pockets and all of these things. Um, and so there's all of these small ways that power is operating as well as these sort of obvious large ways that are sort of emanating from these big towers. And so um, in the same way, I wanted to think about like how does a, a center of mining 
function as a kind of accrual of power? And what if the city is actually a peripheral expression of that? Is there something that, you know, that allows me to reframe and not say, oh, the mine is in the middle of nowhere. That's just nowhere. That's a remote area. It's like, how about if the mine is the heart of the world? What if the mine is, in fact, the center of power and all of the cities are its periphery? So I feel like those terms I learned from radio. But now um, just thinking more broadly about mediation, um, the projects that I then I'm sort of stirring around in are trying to reflect on those things. And the tricky thing is like, well, how, how do I represent that when I then have these sort of mediated recordings? I have images, I have video, I have sound, I have uh, recordings from um, various aspects of the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, and so to sort of realize that I play a lot with uh with distortion and noise and mirage so that it's not necessarily a, a purely reliable or fact-based representation that you then receive um it's it's not just like the truth of a field recording in fact it's the ambiguity of what you hear that's that that gives insight or it's the doubt you have of the scale of what you're looking at that maybe gives insight so um so in a weird way, I feel like in the way I work with media has a lot to do with like detuning it in some way mm -hmm. and in, inviting in more noise and more ambiguity. Right. And so there is this sense that like you're interested in noise and like this very literal way of like uh, noise in the signal, like something interrupting communication or like direct communication in some way. Well, it's also that inviting in noise is is uh, is to say like, let's not only um focus on this on this kind of precise element but instead to be interested in like the kind of breadth of and the multiple elements right. that are all there at the same time so noise is I mean there's many ways to think about it but uh, um, in this case it's more like there isn't a, a difference between noise and signal it's more just to say that like your attention focuses on something or your attention is more broadly available got it so, um, so in many ways, it's kind of um, doing away with some of this like cybernetic theory of communication, which sees that, you know, communication is kind of like moving a bowl of soup from one person to another and trying not to spill anything. And if you can like get the, com the contents of the bowl over to the other person, they can eat the whole contents, then we're done. Great signal has been transmitted. And I'm a lot more interested in the idea of like, well, what's the bowl? Can you tell the difference between the bowl and the soup? You know, <laughs> is the soup in fact the bowl? You know, I mean, so it's just like getting away from the form and content aspect. Yeah. And, and, and so, I mean, I don't feel like you have to do this by always doing self-referential work, but I've often made a lot of self-referential work yeah. where it's like radio art that's about radio. And now I'm kind of making films that are sort of about the fact that they're films. And, um, it, part of it is just to not have the the, the uh, technology be too transparent. Like I I want it to be more more apparent, and therefore it needs to it needs to fail a little bit, or it needs to it needs to not uh, not be clear uh, or not offer a kind of clear summation at every moment. Interesting. I'm really interested by this kind of. Um move away from like a cybernetic view of communication because that's something that I think about a lot and it, 
I think for me, this is just like my own personal problem, but I, I guess I've been in this uh, context where it seems like that's the, the only option. And so I'm just like, oh my gosh, there are other options and other ways of thinking, which is great because cybernetics to me is also so deeply rooted, like you're kind of talking about in this kind of military industrial complex in this like very masculine way of dealing with technology and communicating. And so it's, I, I don't know, I just kind of want to hear you talk more about like these other modes of communication. Well, like for starters, like what about thinking of radio as uh, not a primarily audio medium? Like it's what if it's primarily haptic? What if it's about right. touch? Um, and I mean, I feel like that is an aspect that follows radio throughout its history from the moments of, of Morse code and all of the very musical uh, aspects of Morse code operators having their own really audible signature to other operators just because of the, the so-called fist, you know, right. um, like the idea of being ham fisted in, you know, as far as radio comes from the idea that you're like too hard on your, on your uh, Morse code um, uh, telegraph device. <laughs> uh, like you're just sort of pounding it a bit too much instead of having a more delicate touch. And so uh, there's all these great stories um, during World War II um, in, uh, in the time when um, the allies had, had broken the, um, you know, the code on the Enigma machines for the, uh, uh, that the Nazis had made and, and they were trying to still dissemble and hide the fact that they were able to read the Nazi radio communications. And so they would set up these sort of, uh, they would have other um, uh, operators learn the fist or learn the style of transmission of certain German operators so that they could potentially duplicate those or sort of cause misinformation and so on. And so they hired timpanists from the orchestra <laughs> To, to learn Morse code and then to be able to learn the specific style of some German operators in order to be able to reproduce it. So, I mean, that's sort of one example of there being this like kind of incredibly tactile aspect of, of radio, right. but also just the fact of like all of those hours spent listening with headphones. Like, you know, we think of audio as being something that is ear-based, but what right. is happening is something extremely tactile. And And of course we know that you know, all these other aspects of, of, of sound transmission to us as listening people comes through vibration. So lots of the body does the listening, but that is also true for radio. And it is also true that our interaction with other kinds of electrical circuits has this very sort of haptic element because, you know, our bodies are also being um, touched by them. So, right. so as soon as I start thinking in those terms, then it suddenly is like, well, what about... Um, you know, what if I then start thinking about not the radio, like the radio station, the listener? What if I really try to imagine a city populated by all of its little radios? I try to imagine all of those radios, some of, you know, playing different stations. I try to imagine hearing the ones that are all playing the same station. Like you imagine this population of radios. Um, and then you realize like, well, some of them might be slightly detuned. Some of them are a little bit at the edge of the signal. One's in a car. So, you know, you lose signal if you go under a tunnel or something. Uh, like all of those little micro instabilities are what create this, this overall feeling about radio. And then it's just sort of stupid to talk about like, what's the message and was the <laughs> message received? It's like, well, there's, that, that's not even, we haven't even begun to talk about like, what about uh, our sort of cultural condition that allows us to understand something? Or what about the importance of context? Or what about the ability not just to um, 
receive and then send back some signal, but in fact, like the constant feedback that is happening between those positions at all times, because there's expectation and there's memory and there's misunderstanding and all of those things. So, um, I mean, um, when I started working with images, because I was kind of late to the game of making my own images, um, I started doing that, I guess, about seven or seven or so years ago. Um, the first things that uh, I was photographing were um, uh, electrical lines in heavy fog. And part of my interest was just how graphical the lines looked, but also I was super interested in the fuzziness of the fog because at the same time I was also doing these um, kind of noise-based projects where um, I felt like the fogginess as its own kind of landscape attribute was really was really beautiful and and it was fitting the feeling of the sounds I was making which were also about like listening to electrical fields and that sort of thing um and uh I was interested also in that opacity that like maybe you can't see it's not possible to see and so in the same way that sounds remind one of one another um that sound is so interesting because one sound could stand in for another that uh you know that the, the whole the whole industry of making um sound for film relies on the fact that sound is ambiguous and if you just time it up then the sound that you make in the studio seems as if it's a sound that was recorded at that moment in in you know with whatever you see on the on the screen um there's sort of that aspect as well as the fact that sounds stand in for one another like the sound of wind in trees is pretty similar to the sound of like a, a, a gentle breeze on water or uh, like the hiss of, of like fog on a power line. So there's, there's a certain way that textures speak to one another, which allows you to switch from one scene to another kind of in this more imaginative way. So I was looking to work with visuals in the same sense that what if you weren't completely sure of what you were seeing, you weren't sure that that was of, of its size or its scape and um and therefore uh you could slip from thinking you were looking at one thing to looking in another way and uh, and then especially i was interested in this idea of like listening through radio so what if i feel like i'm looking through radio <laughs> um and so especially because at that time i was living and working at, like staying in iceland and doing work there and so um, I was pretty interested in the, 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 the parallels to different sorts of um, kind of un, uh, 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 what's the word, like mechanical, un, unpersoned uh, machines going to other planets and kind of looking around, you know, like the Mars rover footage was just sort of hitting us a little bit at that moment. And, and I thought, wow, I'm taking photos that look like the Mars rover right now, <laughs> but I'm on Earth, like... So what do they have in common? Is it the minimalist landscape? And I was like, actually, no, it's the mode of looking. Mm -hmm. It's the way of looking. So, um, so then I just sought to try to copy that even more. Like, how can I, how can I ex accentuate that, but be here on earth and, and have that be a way to think about a way of looking. And so I suppose that's a really long way of coming around back to this idea of the mediation and not trying to hide the mediation, but to say that the, the, those those structures of mediation also are are, are communicating as well as their, the idea of there being a sort of message that's being communicated. Right. 
Well, that's great. It answers a lot of the questions that I had, but in a much more natural way. Um, Well, maybe then uh, one of the last questions that I just wanted to talk to you about was the role that collaboration plays in your work. And it seems like there's maybe different kinds of collaboration, like, you know, actual like working one to one with another person versus like the ideas of collaboration that maybe come up with radio. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah, I mean, collaboration has been really important in my work. Um, I mean, initially, because, as you say, because radio is a really collaborative medium. And even if I was sitting alone in the studio late at night making weird blips and bloops, um, I still really felt this strong uh, relationship to people who were listening and people who were calling in sometimes and these long conversations I'd have with them. or um, And some of my early forays into international work you know I I had only really called myself an artist uh, for maybe a year or two in Canada and and started doing some work with some radio people in Austria and in Latvia and this is the late 90s and so it seems very quaint to say this at this moment but um, we thought it was really interesting to be doing these like telematic exchanges and to be continuing this kind of tradition that had come from Fluxus and so on where people had been doing exchanges over telephone and with slow scan and with fax and so on. And so we were doing these these uh, internet jams. So we would have three different locations where everybody had an output to a radio station in some way. Um, and then we were all uh, making sounds and sharing each other's sounds. So we everybody was sort of open in the channel all the time. And so it would build up all of these interesting effects because you have both the delay between locations because the internet was like pretty slow back then, but also the fact that we're sampling, like I make a sound and then it would like end up in the mix in Latvia and in Vienna. And then I would still hear, I would hear this little trace of my sound coming back in the mix that is going out back out in my mix. And maybe I'm still making that, that sort of drone tone or something. So it, it ends up sort of becoming this weird, shimmery, interesting feedback creature. So, uh, so those, those were super fun um, experiments and, um, and I think kind of characterized like the the maybe the scope of collaborating with devices, like kind of unstable circuits where I don't really know what's going to happen. That's a certain kind of collaboration to this sort of very uh, specific organized collaboration with, um, you know, remote participants in different places. And then um, in terms of working with... Uh, uh, specific people I just really enjoy working with the same people over and over again over a long period of time so like Emmanuel Madan and in Montreal and Jeff Kolar from Radius in Chicago uh Konrad Korobievsky um and also like uh some groups that I've worked with over a long period of time like Public Studio in Toronto who are primarily like a film and installation um uh operation uh and um, and then also some of the theater companies I've worked for and choreographers, like what I enjoy about all those settings is that, uh, in a, in a, in a usual situation, the sound person is brought in very late in a project. So if you're making a film, the person who's composing music is brought in, like once the picture is already edited and locked down. Um, and I work with people who don't follow that rule. So they bring me in much earlier. And oftentimes I do the first draft 
in sound and then the video is edited to the sound, for instance. So it offers this sort of other relationship between picture and sound and different collaborators. And, and same thing with devised theater and, and choreography, uh, like with contemporary dance. I've just been super lucky to work with people who wanted all of the designers in right from the very beginning. And that means that we have also this opportunity to have a kind of conceptual input into the piece and not just sort of respond to things that are already decided. So for me, that's much more interesting. I, I just prefer that kind of um, more horizontal making. Um, and sometimes I like being the one who is making the final veto decision. And sometimes it's really nice that that's somebody else's job. And, and I, I have my area to worry about, but I don't have to be the one to make the final decision. So collaboration sometimes is just like gives me the freedom to relax and make interesting sounds and not have to do any of the promotion or any of the grant writing. And I like that too. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's nice to have it all. <laughs> yeah. Actually. 